Imagine our series, the theme of the New Year's series that, that we are in together. In case you didn't know, perhaps you've, you've been gone for a couple of Sundays of the year, or maybe you've been here in, in body only. But um, we are going through an adventure of, of imagining. You know, there are some folks that are almost three weeks into some New Year's resolutions. They're working away at certain commitments that they've made, and imagination is playing a part in their success, or perhaps in their their lack of it. They're imagining what they're going to look like a few pounds lighter. That's motivating them. They're imagining how much healthy they're going to be when they eat less chocolate, or they drink less soda, or they get more exercise. They're imagining the comments from people as they see them in their more fit and slimmed down condition. Or there are those who just have given up imagining. They've decided that they don't look so bad the way they are. And uh, they can't imagine life without chocolate. And don't want to drive to the health club. And that's just the way it is. I remember one year, my son Luke's single New Year's resolution was to get no more speeding tickets. (laughs) He had gotten speeding tickets that year like it was his job. And he was imagining... (laughs) how much more money he could have if he uh, gave up on speeding tickets. So as a group of folks who call ourselves Applewood Community Church and a family that God has brought together, we're spending a few weeks together imagining church and thinking about our lives as God's people because that's what the church is. You know, there's that misnomer, the church is the building. No, church in the scripture is people. The word that is used in the scripture for church literally means those who are called out or the called out ones. We are the called out ones as followers of Jesus, a group of people, not a building, imagining what life might be like as individuals and collectively if we were to really live out what we say we believe. That's the key. In this series, really living out what we say we believe, what we, what we offer up as important to others, this is what we believe. How do we live that? The, the truth is there's, there's research out there today that, that finds the difference between how God's people live their lives as not being a whole lot different than those who don't claim to know God, and how they live their lives. But this is not a series on actions. This is, I think, more of a series on the heart. Where does it start? That place where we believe and understand and embrace truths, are we doing that as God's people? We know that as his church, as his people, we're called into existence to, to partner with him in his mission in the world, setting captive people free. We know that's what Jesus meant when he told his disciples that he was going to build his church. The gates of hell would not stand against his church. God's people, those who are redeemed by Christ, are on mission with God <clears throat> to see those who are held in captivity to sin set free to live in a love relationship that God created them to live in. 
And so the question that we, we must ask, I think, is, is how does this happen? What, what is the church's strategy? And the answer, of course, is that in all situations, we go in with our spiritual guns blazing. We preach and we teach and we whack people over the head with big, thick Bibles <clears throat> until they come to their senses or they're unconscious, either way, and they profess faith in Jesus, right? That's our strategy. You don't seem impressed with that strategy. All right. I guess I'm not either. It is essential, and you know this, that we remember that God is the one who convinces lost people of the truth. So as we think of that mission, we partner with him, and he's called us out of something, into something else, out of an old life, into a new life. And so we live out the truth of that new life, and we trust God to use our seeking to be faithful to touch the lives of people, to convince them that God and his love are real. It's important for us to remember that that for many folks today, our lives really might be the first Bible that they've ever laid eyes on. When they watch our lives, do they see us living out the truth of what we believe about God and our relationship with him? It was Brendan Manning who once said that the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then they walk out the door and they deny him by their lifestyle. Manning says that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. We know that as followers of Christ, he's called us to be a part of his new body in the world. Christ left the earth, sent his spirit to live in us so that that we would live out his presence before lost and broken people actually be the presence of Jesus in this world, in our relationships with others. The church fulfills its mission when it does that. Anything else is simply not being the church. So living out the truths and the values of the kingdom of God in the power of the spirit of God and hopefully rousing interest and raising questions in the lives who of those who are not yet followers of Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Rome. He said, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, the Spirit that God has given to those who love Him, those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind controlled by the sinful nature is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's, he's, he's saying that, that God's people have been given the Spirit of God which is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit that filled and directed Jesus and flowed out of his life in all that he did and all that he said. God has given us that Spirit. Those who are followers of Christ, the redeemed, have been given the Spirit 
that empowered Jesus to live the life that he did in his humanity. So that means that our thinking and our resulting actions can bring pleasure to God because we are indwelled by the Spirit who indwelled Jesus. Does this make sense? Okay. So last Sunday, we considered together the the amazing, life-changing love of God. We looked at Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at that again this morning and couple it with another text. You remember... John writes those words, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. That's what Paul's driving at at the end of Romans chapter 8. The amazing love of God, that description of God's powerful, keeping, securing love. When God makes us his children, brings us into his family, we are secure. Secure in this life and secure for all eternity. And so... This morning, I want us to take this, the next step, one step further, with another dimension or perhaps another perspective on what God does for us or what God's love does for us in a practical way every day and, and what I think should be the result of God's people and how they live their lives and what people see in us. When folks watch our lives when folks know us well enough to get close enough to us to know how we think and to hear what we say, what do they experience? Do they experience Jesus? Do they hear Christ? Do they see Christ? So, let's stand and read again from the end of Romans chapter 8. Not as much as we did last Sunday, just those last few verses. Remember the context, Paul has been talking about difficulties in life, that we, uh, we face these difficulties, and yet we are, we are conquerors. Let's read together. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when Paul says that nothing else will separate us, what does he mean by that? Nothing. Okay, okay. There is nothing that separates us from the love of God. In Ephesians, we're going to add just a few verses here, and it's a prayer of Paul's. Ephesians can kind of divide it quickly into two halves. First half, Paul is just talking in these glorious terms of God's amazing love and, and His grace that has rescued us from darkness and brought us into His kingdom. And then the second half of the book is pretty much, okay, now here's how those people are going to live their lives. And he's talking about unity and relationships and, and living as the children of light versus children of darkness. And just before that Second half begins, this is his prayer for the Ephesians. Let's read this together. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, 
They have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Do you hear our word in there? He can do more than we can imagine according to His power that is at work in us for His glory that comes through the life of the church. I love that phrase that He includes. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people. I like that. We, we are being included in this prayer. He wants them and He wants us to know the size of God's love, the length, the width, the height, the depth. It's interesting to read the commentators on a phrase like that because you read, you read all their, their thoughts and their ideas and, and essentially what it comes down to is they're all just saying, we don't have any idea what Paul is thinking when he says that other than God's love is really big. God's love is really great. God's love is really awesome. And, and that, that is where Paul's going. He is a man who is just smitten with the love of God for him. A man who you remember said, I was chief of sinners, but God's love transformed his life. And so, He wants them to know. He's praying for them to know the love of God, that it is bigger, that it is more grand than anything that they can imagine. And then, for emphasis, he makes the statement that we read, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Interesting phrase. The the words that we translate there in the original language, they they mean literally to, to throw over or beyond anything to transcend, to surpass, to exceed, to excel. Paul is saying this is love from beyond. It is is from another realm. He's praying essentially that, that the Ephesians and that all of God's people, the believers at Applewood, will know something that is really beyond knowing. That will know something that's practically unknowable. That's the sense of the language that we will know something that cannot be known apart from the Spirit of God making it known. And I think that's why he starts the prayer out with those words. I I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. There is the gift of the Spirit that God gives to his people so that they may begin to understand things that are just not understandable. They may be able to grasp things that are just from totally beyond. Things that are are on the other side, if you will. 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And the reason for that is so that so that we can grasp, hopefully, the incredible size of this love, bigger than anything we can imagine. Understanding that it's a love, as we've said, that comes from another realm. And the reason for all of that, Paul says, is this, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now those words, filled to the measure. Interesting translation on on that phrase. To make full, to fill up, to fill to the full, to cause to abound, to furnish or supply liberally, to make complete, to fill to the top, so that nothing shall be wanting, to full measure, fill to the brim. Supersizes. I like that, John. Supersizes. Filled to the measure. So what does it mean to be filled to the brim on the verge of overflowing with the fullness of God? That is what Paul wants for the Ephesians and for us. I think, simply put, it means to have the character of God as we see and experience it in the life of Jesus filling us. Paul wrote to the Colossians. It's the only place that we, that we find this particular phrase in Scripture, but Paul said something similar to the Colossians. He said to them that God was pleased, in chapter 1, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. So we, we wrestle with that the incarnation, the God-man, as we look at the life of Jesus, as we see his life, as we observe his values and his commitments and his passion, we are seeing the values and the commitment and the passions of God. Mystery of mystery. But Paul says, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. He repeats that and adds to it in chapter 2 of Colossians and says to have all his fullness dwell in bodily form. So, when Paul prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts so that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, I think he's driving at filled to the brim, to the point of overflowing with the fullness of God as we see the fullness of God in the life of Jesus. That it is the life and the heart and the passion of Jesus that fills us. To be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, can I say it like this? Is to be like Jesus from head to toe. In everything, everything that comes from us, everything that people see in us is the life of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, the values of Jesus. It's rather daunting. I, I <laughs> Good point. So, can you ask your neighbor a question for me this morning? 
turn to someone and, and ask them this question. Why does Paul want the believers at Ephesus and Applewood Community Church to be filled to the brim with the character of Christ? Probably obvious, but talk about it. Because that's what he's driving at. Why is it important to him? Why does he want this? Okay, we ready? What do you think? Was it simple or not so simple? Craig? Fire away. I'll ask my wife for an answer. <laughs> that is a great question. I think the idea, at least from what I've read this week, is we like the idea of overflowing. And I think that happens if something is filled to the brim and it gets bumped or it gets jostled. You know, it's, it's what, this is my spin. It's what's at the top that spills out. And so Paul is praying that we'll be filled up so that there's not room for anything else to be in there but the fullness of God. That's my speculation. Typically, we don't mean that as a good thing. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Did you all hear that? Doesn't leave room for the individual to be full of themselves. As the body, you know, we, we are to be filled with the fullness of Christ. What else? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably true. I think I've used the phrase before, if you've read Dallas Willard, you know, he talks about vampire Christianity. You know, we want just enough of Jesus' blood to save us, but not to really transform us into that fullness of Christ. Get me to heaven, but let me do my thing here. That is kind of paraphrasing. Let me ask a question that, that spins off of that, not just to you, but to all of us, because Sharissa was, was asking this a moment ago. So where, where, where does this leave us as, as individuals in terms of our differences when we think about being like Christ? Well, for all of you ladies, that's going to be t- you know, difficult if we mean being a man like Christ. You know, right away, you're at a disadvantage. So what, what are we talking about? When we talk about being like Christ, filled with the fullness of God that is the presence of Christ, what does that mean? Allie, what do you think? Okay, okay. And, and can you think of some particulars or somebody, what would be reflecting Christ? Donna, maybe that's not what you were going to say. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Okay, good, good. Lee? And, and Paul is very, very clear in here to, to say that this is, this is generated by the Spirit of God. This, this, yeah, this is, this is life in the Spirit. Sharice? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so let me ask the question then. If we're filled up, if we're filled to the brim, and we get bumped in life, in our relationships and the circumstances and the events that are common to us all, what is it that's going to spill out? If we are filled to the fullness of the character of God, then what's going to spill out? Oh, yeah, praise. Hopefully the character of God. If, if, there's, if there's room at the top for me to stuff some of my crud in there, then that's what gets spilled out. I th- okay, let, let's continue. I, I was going to go down a rabbit trail. Um, <laughs> I know that's a shocker, isn't it? A rabbit trail. So... 
I think that it's, it's legitimate, it's, it's right for us to say that our goal as Christ's witnesses then is to be a people who are surrendered to the work of the Spirit, reminding us of who we are in Christ, reminding us of God's love, reminding us of His presence in our lives to push us to constantly be thinking and desiring to be filled with the fullness of God, which is Christ-like, godly character. That, that needs to be our goal as God's people. That is what we are, are called out to do. You might remember Peter's writings. He said, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so we are people who have been called out of darkness, and the symbolism of darkness in Scripture are people who don't live in relationship to God. They are people who live for themselves. They don't live as if God has anything to do with anything important. The scripture uses the imagery of being called from that, of being rescued and brought into the kingdom of light. Paul says to the Colossians, the kingdom of the Son whom God loves. The Son whom God loves spent his life in passionate pursuit of others knowing his Father. So, how about us? You're probably tired of hearing me say this, but but here I go again. I, I truly... I believe with all my heart that one of the main reasons that more people in our culture are not interested in Jesus Christ is because they have not experienced Jesus in the lives of those who claim to be his followers. And honestly, it it is more than just the behavioral kinds of things in our lives that we tend to think of. You know, the, the smoking and the drinking and the dancing and, you know, those have kind of gone by the wayside, but there are new issues in our culture today. We tend to think in terms of Christians are people who don't do certain things. I think we need to stand that on its head and, and talk about people who are committed to certain things. We are people who are committed most and foremost to the glory of God And the attention of God being known through the way that I live my life, for the way that I conduct myself. I think what happens is we tend to identify this category of greater sins, whatever those might be. And Christians are people who don't do those things. But Christians are okay if they do these things. I'm not sure that that's even on Paul's radar screen here. Paul is talking about people who are passionate about God because they are filled by His Spirit to the fullness of God's character. And that begins to live, it out, live itself out uh, in, in some very distinctive ways. So imagine, bottom line, imagine what your life, what our lives together might be like if we really lived out what Paul is saying and praying in these verses. If we lived as if God first of all, has really answered this prayer that Paul has prayed, and he has. We, as the people of God, have been filled with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit reminds us and teaches us more and more about God's love, that love that is really unknowable. And yet, as the Spirit makes that known to us, we begin to be filled every inch of our being with the character 
of Jesus. I really think that this, this is the starting point. You know, we, we have spent time last week, this week, looking at, at, at the nature of, of God's love. Let me put it in just a little bit different way as, as we finish up this morning. Understanding the love of God is the foundation, I think, for imagining what the church could look like. Imagining what our lives could look like. Last week, Romans 8 text, those verses especially that we read at the, uh, together, taught us about the this, this sweeping, securing, keeping nature of God's love. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. And so, it's, it's a defensive love, if you will. It's a protective love. I think this Ephesians text gives us another side or another dimension of God's love. Paul is teaching that God's love is actually in you. It's not something that's just outside of you protecting you from all the stuff and will never let you be separated from him. But God's love is resident in your life if you are a follower of Jesus, filled by his spirit to the fullness of the character of God. John tells us that God is love. And so what do people experience when they run into us? Do they know from bumping into us, whoa, God is love. It's it's offensive. I don't mean offensive as in you're offending people, although sometimes that does happen. It's offensive in the sense of it's something that comes out of us towards others. You remember those verses in, it's, I think it's Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is talking about being cracked pots. And he says, you know, we're, 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 we're persecuted and we're put down and we're trampled on and we have this treasure of God's love and grace in these cracked pots. And what happens when you put water into a cracked pot? Well, it flows out of the pot. And so there, there's that image of the love of God being resident in us so that when we are punched and kicked and put down and struck and dropped and, 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 and the exterior cracks, what flows out of us? if we're filled with the love of God. So, the love of God, as we continue over the next few weeks, to imagine what life would be like if we really lived out what we believed, love of God is the foundation. We've really got to believe that God's love protects us, and that we've got to believe that God's love by His Spirit, if we will give attention to it, and desire that and long for that, God's love will flow out of us. Okay, so let me ask you a question, and, and with this we're going to wrap up for this morning. Can you think of a time in Jesus' life that he was ever afraid? I, I, can't, I can't think of one. I mean, certainly he was, he was, yeah, he was troubled in the garden for sure. Uh, anguished, wasn't, you know, looking forward with, uh, you know, great anticipation to, to the cross. But we never see Jesus in his life that is recorded for us in the Gospels. We never see fear and, and we never see worry. There's no anxiousness or, you know, anxiety in Jesus. And I think it's because 
Jesus was the perfect model of what we're talking about here. Jesus knew that his life was surrounded by that preserving, protecting love of God, but also his life was filled with the loving presence of the Spirit of God who, who directed and pushed him through life. So here's an assignment for you this week, if you're willing. Um, make a list of every fear that you have. Be honest. I'm not going to ask anybody to look at your list. This is just between you and the Lord. But make a list of every fear that you have. What are the things in life that cause you fear? What are the things that make you worry? Things that make you anxious? And then, and then think about this. Why does this make me worry? Why does this make me fearful? What is that saying about your trust and your confidence in the love of God that is both around you and in you for your life. I am convinced that there's nothing, at least for my life, that assaults our witness as followers of Jesus more than fear and worry. Nothing. The enemy knows this. You remember the story of Job? Satan got permission to wreak havoc on Job's life because he thought that if he could strip things away, Job would throw in the towel on God and doubt his character and his goodness. And I think that's where fear and anxiety comes from in our lives. Whether it's fear of what someone's going to think of us, whether it's fear of failure, whether it's fear of the unknown disease, whether it's fear of financial loss, you name it. There's plenty to fear about. You know, just, just pick something. It's out there. There's so much to be fearful and worried about. And I think that's why when we respond to fear with confidence in God's love that surrounds us and fills us, that is something that people are going to notice in our lives. When they see this abnormal resilience to fear, to worry, to anxiety, it's, it's a gift of God's love. And that's what we need to give attention to in our lives. So, praise team, come up. And as they come, let me just read you this, uh, this quote from one of the, the early church fathers. Tertullian lived in the uh, second century. And he makes this statement. He says, the Lord, the Lord challenges us to suffer persecutions and to confess him. He wants those who belong to him to be brave and fearless. He himself shows how weakness of the flesh is overcome by courage of the spirit. Tertullian says, this is the testimony of the apostles and in particular of the spirit in their lives. And then he says this, a Christian is fearless. A Christian is fearless.